Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. We're going to go ahead and get into this. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Uh, Today is going to look a little bit different. As I I prepare and as I study, there are... uh, there are weeks where the sermon has a really nice buttoned up start and middle point and finish. And then there's times where it's, there's a whole lot of ground to cover. Like last week, there is a ton of information uh, that is communicated in a relatively short period of time. And then there are times where I'm, I'm looking at my clock and I'm simply looking at the clock and going, wherever I get to is where I get to today. There are things that I want to share with you today about Romans 11 that tie in with what we talked about last week that are just really important. And last week was so important that I should have just slowed down a bit. Uh, but but it, I, I've shared with you or I shared with you last week that the reason why I chose to take Romans 9, 10, 11 in one fell swoop through one breath is because that's how the Apostle Paul wrote it. He wrote a letter to a people in Rome, and we are notorious as people for taking things in isolation. How many of you have, be honest with me, how many of you have posted a single verse to a social media account or liked a single verse this week when you were reading your Bible? How many of you did that? I did it. I did it. Come on. The rest of you are liars because I liked all your posts. So I don't, I don't know what's happening here. Anyway, the, the, the idea here is that we post these things. Now, I am, I am trusting that you are looking at those verses within their context. I'm trusting that you're doing so. But many people in the Christian world today, they simply don't look to the context of that of a verse. They see a verse that seems to tell them what their feelings want to hear. God's going to make tomorrow the most blessed day in the world and I'm going to be happy and never am I going to face any turmoil or trial or frustration. And so I'm going to quote a passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, God knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper me and keep me and give me a future and I'm going to stand on that mountain and act like that promise was actually for me. But it was written for a people in Jeremiah's day, and there's another promise that goes along with that promise that says, oh, by the way, and you're going into captivity for 70 years. Smile. You know how many Christians I know that post the verse about going into captivity as a promise they're claiming? None of them. It's an amazing reality. Now, does, does God say he'll take care of us and care for us? Yes. How does he say it? He actually says it in the New Testament when he when he calls all of his people to become bird watchers. He says, look to the sparrows. Do I not take care of the sparrows? How much more will I take care of you? I care for you deeply. I will take care of you. Don't worry. But when you read it in context, you start to have the right sense of peace for what God is saying. Because when you take things out of context and you claim things that you think God is saying to you and then they don't come true, You know what happens next? Doubt, confusion, questions. You start to worry if God's actually talking to you or if you're reading correctly or those things. But if we will read things in context, it will really help us. 
So last week, I went through Romans 9 through 11, and in my closing statements, I pointed out two things, and I want to I remind you of those two things. The first one was this, that in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is not communicating some obscure doctrine about divine election unto salvation and reprobation or damnation, simply not Paul's view. Now, I've made the case very clearly for why Paul is saying what he's saying. Instead, Paul's point is to show the unyielding mercy of God. He has showed us over and over that he is willing to endure with great patience the objects of his wrath. Okay, That would be a disobedient and obstinate, unbelieving Israel. He does that so that we, Gentiles, might hear the gospel. The plan of God is that that is going to continue until the fullness of the gospel or fullness of the Gentiles are brought in. And in that moment, he is going to save Israel. But how will he save Israel? Does he just say, okay, I've wiped away your sins from the past and I'm just going to ignore that you keep rejecting me? No, the scripture is clear. He is going to save those who pursue him by faith. Why? Because that's the story throughout all of scripture. God saves by grace through faith. He doesn't change his MO. It simply doesn't change. So Israel is not all, all who claim to be Israel are not Israel. How many of you know that? Romans 9, 6 through 7 says this. But instead, Paul says, those who pursue by faith, Romans 9, 31 through 32. If they will simply not persist in their unbelief, God is going to save even hardened Israel. So we see this amazing piece. Now, I'm going I'm to reinforce that case again today uh, through chapter 11 as we go through it. But another thing that I shared last week was the context of the potter and the clay. This is a most misunderstood passage of Scripture. And just in case you needed peace of mind that, that Nathan is somehow taking a left turn from all of uh, church tradition, I'm simply taking a right turn back to an idea that was held for 1,500 years in church history. And that is that the potter and the clay has everything to do with nations and everything to do with people groups and is not about individuals. Now, let me, let me share this with you just a little bit clearer. I showed you that Romans 9 communicates a hardened Jewish people and that God is going to a Gentile people. That is the nations or the world. I made that connection with Timothy, where God actually says through Paul to Timothy that if you want to be a vessel for noble use, then there's a response that you need to make, and that is to cleanse yourself. How are we cleansed, church? Through the blood of Jesus. By grace, through faith. Yet again, the same exact story. But Paul, just like uh, just like we in our world today, we are not Christians. He was not a Christian in isolation. He actually knew what God had said about the potter and the clay from the prophet Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. If you have a digital Bible, you'll be able to get there quickly. But Jeremiah chapter 18. This is what the Apostle Paul knows, remember, that Paul is a very good, astute Jewish man. 
tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. When Paul says in the New Testament, according to the law, he is faultless, I believe Paul meant that he followed it to a T. What is the truth of the scripture? Nobody can be made righteous by their works. Nobody can earn their way to Jesus. It cannot be done. But Paul was really good at keeping rules. The Jewish people of Jesus' day made so many rules to keep the other rules that they were just amazing at this kind of thing. But they had missed the heart of God completely in their rule keeping. So here's where Paul gets the notion of the potter and the clay. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, starting at verse 1, here's what he says. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house. So he wants Jeremiah to go down to this potter's house and to observe something. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my word to you. I have to think if God called me somewhere, I would, I would go, okay, I'm listening. Verse 3, then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on a wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled. Now look at what happens from the potter. The vessel of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, and it pleased the potter to make. Ah, He remade the vessel of brokenness into a vessel that was pleasing to him. You notice the passage doesn't say he remade the vessel or he saw the defect in the vessel and said, go to hell. (laughs) He didn't say that. He remade, he reformed because God is a God of reformation. God is a God who reforms the brokenness of our lives. But let's keep going because the Apostle Paul knows this story. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, now this is God speaking to Israel, okay? Who is a a vessel with a defect deeply in them. This is why Paul is talking about the defective, disobedient, obstinate Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, okay? So here's what he says. This is God to Israel. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? What did the potter just do? He remade them. God is asking, can I not remake you anyway? Can I not uh, uh, scrap that mess and reform you into something pleasing to me? He's talking to Israel, the nation. Now look at what he says. He says, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom, notice it's nations and kingdoms, to uproot and pull down or to destroy it. Most people stop at verse 7, but look at what verse 8 says. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, that is repentance, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring on it. Verse 9. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. Ah, we have a future picture of the Gentiles and the nations. But look at what happens. He says, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, notice what they have to do, obey his voice. If they do evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will rethink then I will think better, is what the NISB says, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. 
Paul knows the story of the potter. And there's not one verse of that story of the potter. Not one verse of the story in Romans 9. Not one verse of what we read in in Timothy that speaks of God saying the potter is mad and ready to kill you all. Not one. It is always the mercy of the potter to say, if you will relent, if you will repent, I will remake you. Why? Because the potter that we serve is what? Merciful. He is a extremely merciful God. This again is why Paul is actually speaking of the unyielding mercy of the living God. So we need to remember that context will help us to understand and to translate literally every word we read in the scripture. Psalm 119, 160 says that the sum total of God's word is truth. What does that mean? That means your one verse or one chapter in isolation is not full truth. You have to be careful. God meant something. God was saying something. This is why I'm a firm believer. I believe in lots of forms of theology. I believe that all forms of theology are beneficial. But I am a firm believer that that narrative theology is a better tool in most cases than a systematic theology. Why? Because God wrote a narrative. God wrote us a story, and he wrote us into that story. God did not write us a a series of presuppositions, a series of beliefs. He didn't write us a creed and then go back and prove it, although the creeds are important, because the creeds do the right thing. The creeds sum up the narrative, not the other way around. The creed didn't inform the narrative. The creed spoke about that grand narrative. Narrative theology is an important way for us to really understand what God is saying. So with that in view, I want to share with you a point about context. And this is important. I want you to write it down if you're a note taker. And I don't want you to uh, get a pitchfork and a torch out against me until you hear all that I have to say. Okay? And here's what I want you, what I want you to write down. God, God did not give us a single verse of Scripture. Write that down. God did not give us a single verse of Scripture. You're like, Nathan, (laughs) you're testing me here. Okay, number two, God did not give us a single chapter of Scripture. You want to know why those are true? Because God gave us entire letters of Scripture. He gave us entire books of Scripture, 66 to be exact. He gave us an entire collection of those writings. And this is why Timothy is told that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking, for training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. Let me give you some examples of this. God did not give us Romans 3.23 without Romans (laughs) 3.24. God did not give us Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you know that verse? You're like, yep, used on my neighbors all the time. Okay, (laughs) right? God did not give us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God without verse 24, which says this, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know what the antecedent of both sinner and redemption is? All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and 
This is common language. This is understanding grammar. All being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For those who will believe. Those who will put their trust in God. God also did not give us John 3, 16 and 17. Back off, Nathan. That's my verse. God did not give us John 3, 16 and 17 without 3, 18. Here's John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. So obviously you know who the world is in view here. The judgment of the world is not the judgment of the trees, right? It is the judgment of the people. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Look at chapter 3, verse 18, though. He who believes in him is not judged. What's required? Belief. Trust him. Trust him. Belief, faith, and trust are not works of your own. They are a response to the work of Jesus. And those come because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and the word of God is the gospel, Romans 1.16, which is his power unto salvation. Verse 18 goes on and says, He who does not believe has been judged already. You're you're already in that place of judgment if you don't believe in Jesus. Jesus didn't have to come to judge you. You already stinketh. That's the King James for you. Anyway, that's what they said about Lazarus. So anyway, by now he stinketh. Anyway, okay, so here's another one. Those are easy, right? We connect them because it's one verse after another or two verses and then the next verse. But let me give you one that's a little harder to understand. Just like Romans 9, 10, and 11 have to be understood in their context, along with Jeremiah 18, along with everything else that God is saying. God did not give us John 6.44. John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God did not give us that verse without also giving us John 12, 32, which is Jesus also speaking when he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. This is exactly why we have to take the time that we did on Romans chapter 9 through 11. Because outside of context, you can make a passage of scripture say anything you want. This is my great frustration frustration with the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. This is my great frustration because it allegorizes everything. It turns everything into, it's all about me in the 21st century and all about how God actually wants me to prosper. And it takes into no account the fact that momentary light affliction is necessary for producing in us an eternal weight of glory. It has no clue because what does it do? Jeremiah 29, 11 is my life verse. Uh, Je- Jeremiah 29, 11 speaks of God's faithfulness, yes. The New Testament tells God cares for you. The scripture conveys that we can trust him and that he will not let us slip or fall. But the scripture doesn't promise you a good life in this life. How many of you know that by experience? <laughs> How many of you know that by experience? I'm going to raise my hand for some of you. I've watched you on social media. It ain't so good all the time, but God is faithful. Amen? Amen. 
God is good. So we look at things in context because it actually gives us a greater sense of peace of what God is really saying to us. This is important. So without further ado, uh, Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Again, these are the words of God. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Say it with me, church. May it never be. Right? May it never be. God has not rejected his people. What is Paul coming off of? What, what did Paul just say at the end of chapter 10? Well, look at it. Verse, uh, verse 21. But as for Israel, God says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Who is he referring to? A disobedient and obstinate Jewish people. Don't miss it. He stretched his hand out to them forever. So, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected those people, has he? Now let me prove it to you uh, another way. May it never be. Then Paul says this, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. How many of you know that it wasn't all the way into chapter 11 when Paul finally stuck a hello my name tag, uh, hello my name is name tag on? Paul is not at chapter 11 saying, by the way, I'm Paul, in case you missed that. He's not. He's using himself as a proof text or a proof case that God has saved, still saved Israel or has not rejected them. Look at what he says. May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Did he not rescue me? Did he not call me on the Damascus road? Did he not baptize me in his spirit? Did he not change my life? I mean, remember who I was. I was killing you people, the Christians. But God has not rejected me. Why? Because he met me on the Damascus road. Now, I love that story. Because when, when God confronts Paul on the Damascus road, he asks him a question. He says, why in the world are you persecuting me? And Paul reveals he doesn't know the God he worships. He doesn't know him because he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the one who is standing before him. And guess what happens when God confronts him with his sin? He turns. God says, you go here, you get baptized, you do this. Paul goes. Paul goes. And he follows after him. He relents of his persecution, of his hatred, and he follows after God because by the way, guys, we are saved by grace through faith, a repentance and a believing in the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm the proof case that God has not rejected his people. May it never be. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Then verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He may have hardened them right now, but he has not rejected them. He may have hardened them, but he has not rejected them. So Paul, again, his own proof text, and the word foreknow there, prognosco, referring back to Israel, not something before the foundation of the world. So look at this. Verse 2 goes on. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? For he pleads with God against Israel. Will you underline that in your Bible? Elijah pleaded with God, what? Against Israel. I don't want that prophet anymore. <laughs> He's against me. What is the problem here? He pleads against me. Look at what Elijah says. Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. 
This sounds like a prophetic pity party to me. (laughs) Nobody's left. What does God say? Look what Paul says. But what was the divine response to him? Settle down, bud. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have, I have kept for myself 7,000 men, but underline it, make sure you don't overlook it, don't skip it in your Bibles. I have saved for myself 7,000 randomly. No, who have not lost faith and bowed the knee to another God. They have not bowed a knee to Baal. That's what Israel's problem was. Prostitution. They had, they had prostituted themselves to all the other gods that were around them. And God says, nope, you're not the only one, Elijah. 7,000 plus one. They have not bowed their knee to Baal either. Look at what he says. In the same way, in the same way, there has also come to be a, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, this is where we have to take a little bit of time and exercise what Paul is saying and understand what he is saying in its context. Okay, so he says, there is come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. In comparison to what? The 7,000 that didn't bow a knee to Baal. Remember that. Just keep that firmly in your mind. God is saying at the present time, there's still a remnant. Paul is reassuring people who go, is God's faithfulness gone? Has he rejected his people? May it never be. God has set apart a remnant, just like in Elijah's day. But look at what verse 6 says. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Do you notice what is juxtaposed here? What is contrasted? Grace and works. Not grace and faith. The Bible never sets grace against faith. Why? Because you are saved by grace through faith. You are not saved by your effort, by your works, by your proving to God that you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people should like you. That's not what the scripture says to us. So it's important that we understand that faith is still clearly in view here, but works is the problem. How many of you have ever found yourself trying to keep your relationship good with God by keeping all the rules and regulations and and stepping up? How many of you have done that? Yeah? Yeah? You would say that you've done that? I want you to know something about the scripture. We are saved by grace through faith, and we are kept by grace through faith. Okay? We are saved by grace through faith, and we are kept by grace through faith. You are not saved by grace through faith and kept by your unfailing, never screwing up obedience, and always doing everything right, but... I need to insert a big but inside of this. You are saved by grace through faith. You are kept by grace through faith. But in view of mercy, what does God call us to do? Die every day. Lay down our lives. This is why it is so wrong-headed for for Christians to say, Ah, I'm saved by grace. Therefore, I can be a Christian and still be this kind of sinner. Nonsense. 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 You've missed the mercy component of this. We are saved by grace through faith, and we are kept by grace through faith. So verse 6, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
God has a remnant that is loved not because they were good, but because they just kept trusting him. They kept relying on him. That's your call as well. You are simply called to trust him. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Those who, by faith, didn't bow a knee to anyone else. Do you see the connections? All of it is right in line with what is saying. Now, I want to prove this to you by taking you back to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, verses 30 and 32. Look what the Apostle Paul says here. This was uh, two chapters ago, but Romans 9, 30 uh, through 32. What, What shall we say then? This is Paul's great question to what is happening in the world today. He points this out. He says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. What's their righteousness attained by? Faith. Paul said it. Don't worry, it's, it's not wrong. Paul said it, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. What were they pursuing? A law of righteousness. They were pursuing works. They were trying to earn their keep before God. Verse 32, why? Why did they not arrive at that righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay on Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who what? Believes in him will not be disappointed. You can't take these words out. They're very clearly all over this text. So, here's where I'm going with this. Here's what I want you to to see. Do you notice that Paul does not denounce pursuit in Romans 9, 30 through 32? He does not denounce pursuit. He denounces pursuing something by something. Pursue righteousness by faith. You should. You should. But you should not pursue righteousness by your own works. Why? Because you won't arrive at it just like anybody else won't arrive at it. Do you understand? How many of you know deeply in your heart you cannot be good enough to make God love you? You can't opt out of this question here. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you can't opt out of saying, I'm in, I understand that, I'm, I'm on board. You cannot earn your way to God. But God does not say do not pursue him by faith. He says you are not to pursue him by works, pursue him by earning your own righteousness because if Israel didn't attain it, why would the nations attain it that way? It doesn't make any sense. But Paul never denounces pursuing God by faith. This is why 1 Corinthians 9.24 and 2 Timothy 4.7 and all of the book of Hebrews basically tell us to run the race, to finish the race, to fight the good fight, to endure to the end, to hold fast, to stand, be stand firm, or to, to stand firm. Why? Why? Because we are to pursue by faith. Every instance in the scripture when it says stand firm, hold fast, fight the good fight, fight it's not talking about your work. It's talking about you trusting in what he has done. It's talking about you keep focusing that he made you righteous. Now, this is going to be important for some of you. 
Because there are many people who are self-righteous and they don't realize they're self-righteous. So, so hear me out. When it comes to screwing up, how many of you have screwed up? So Dave's lying right now by not raising his hand, okay? So raise it now. Okay, so, so check it out. Check it out. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've also done this in the past 24 hours. We, we fall short on a regular basis. Here's the deal. The self-righteous person, when they screw up, says this. The self-righteous person screws up and says, uh-oh, dad's going to kill me. Do you want to know why? Because the self-righteous person is resting on their righteousness. I just screwed up. Uh-oh, God's going to kill me. The person who pursues righteousness by faith, when they screw up, says, I desperately need to talk to my father. I desperately need to talk to my father. You see, Adam ran from God. That was not the right thing to do. God was still merciful in that. But he was self-righteous. He looked at it and went, I made a colossal mistake. But the righteousness which is attained by faith makes a mistake and says, my God said that he will forgive me, that he is faithful and just to forgive me of all unrighteousness. So I'm going to run to my father. I screwed up, dad, help. Do you know that? If you don't know that, you have not lived in freedom yet. You have not lived in the peace that the scripture communicates. You are saved by grace through faith, not kept by your works. You are saved by grace through faith and kept by grace through faith. You trust him. He's merciful, church. He's merciful. But the self-righteous person freaks out and thinks they, they've messed up beyond repair. God is keeping you. He loves you. But what does he want of you? To keep coming back to him. Run to him. Put your complete trust in him. How many of you struggle with that? Be honest with me. You screw up and you go, uh-oh, he's mad at me. How many of you struggled with this for years in your life? You're like, for years I felt like God was just sitting there waiting to shock me with a lightning bolt. Right? Yeah. That's, that's what we think. But when we understand in context the story of Scripture, what we know is that we're saved by the mercy, the relentless, unending, unyielding mercy of God. We're saved by that mercy. And our response, trust it. Trust it. Now, there's somebody in the room. There's some in the room. I'm one of them. Actually, that's why I'm, I'm proposing the hypothetical question that say, hold on, Nathan, but what about holiness? God calls us to holiness. He actually makes a bunch of commands. Yes. And in view of mercy, you are to obey him. In view of mercy, you are called to follow him. Because here's what's true, church. The Bible talks about God being a father. And the Bible talks about God being a friend. And the Bible talks about God being God. But the Bible also talks about God being a master. Don't erase it from your mind. God confronted Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 31, and he said this. He says, why do my people say we're free to roam? You're not free to roam. Could you imagine if your wife looked at you husbands and said, um, I know I said I do, but aren't I free to roam? Um, um, sit down, woman. Right? That's, <laughs> and then she'd smack me and we, whatever. But the idea is, no, you're not free to roam. That's what the covenant is about. 
You showed me love. You showed me mercy. You showed me grace. And in view of that, I want to do what you say. Just in case you need a New Testament equivalent to Jeremiah chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 6.20 is very clear to Christians. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with what? Your body. Your, your existence. Your life. What is there to say about holiness? It is still something to be pursued by faith. It is not something to be pursued by trying to make God cajole him into loving you. He does. If you have accepted his son, you're in, baby. You guys aren't getting with me here, okay? Uh, here's what I'm going to do. Thank you, Bob. It's, it's about time. Somebody's on it with me, okay? How about we say this all together? If we're Christians, say this with me. I'm in, baby. I knew it. It was great to hear you say that. So let's just keep going, right? So what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen, those who had faith, those who trusted in God, they've obtained it. And the rest were hardened. But look at God's mercy towards the hardened. Look at his mercy towards the hardened. This makes me happy. This is a potter who sees a defect in the clay and reforms it instead of scrapping it. Look at what he says. He says, uh, what about those the rest were hardened? And just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. <laughs> we're trying to curb our daughters from saying stupid. Okay, because things can be stupid, but saying people are stupid is a problem. And do you know that children as early as three really understand this idea of calling their siblings stupid? <laughs> what the heck are you doing? Okay, so Joe walks around the house going, you're stupid. I'm like, and Joe, Joe is wired just like me. So Joe is as loud as I am. You're stupid. <laughs> so we hear it from the other side of the house, right? But so, so we're trying to do this. God gave these people the spirit of stupid. Isn't that amazing? Sorry, but you're stupid for a reason. Okay, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not. Did you, did you remember the words that John sang this morning about God giving us eyes and giving us ears? Do you know how the scripture says he does it? Through the gospel. Because when that power of God is spoken, the same thing that happened in creation happens in dead people. The Spirit of God, the, the Word of God comes and it calls things to life. God says, let there be light through words. Why is it that we wouldn't believe he can call dead people to salvation through words? That's what the gospel is, church. We don't have to make obscure doctrines. We don't have to change the ordo salutis. We don't have to reverse things and make it uh, go a different way. All we have to say is God's gospel really is his power unto salvation. If he can say, let there be light, his word says, Jesus is the only way. And the person says, you know, that's true. And they respond. That's what the scripture communicates. So God gave these people a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and, their tra and a trap. And underline this in your Bible, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Well, you made them stumble. 
you're missing the context. Look at what it says. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Say it with me, church. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, Paul has in view Romans 8, 19 through 21, which is the creation longing to be uh, set free from bondage. And their failure is riches to the Gentiles. He has in view Romans 10, 19 through 20, the actual people who are gone to, to provoke Jews to jealousy. How much more will their fulfillment be? Do you want to know what the fulfillment of the Jewish people will be? The glory of God, because why? Say it with me, church, because he's merciful. Say it, because he's merciful. Why will God's glory abound in this time? Because God never stops loving. He never stops pursuing. He never stops caring. This is the God we serve. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me scratch my head a lot. It makes me scratch my head a lot. That God is this relentlessly merciful to these people. I want you to think again about what the Jewish people have done to God. Number one, he built a vineyard for them and he leased the vineyard to them. You can read this story in Mark chapter 12 because that's what the point of the parable is. So he leased the vineyard to the Jewish people and he sent his servants, which were prophets, to go receive uh, the fruit of their labor from them because that's how a lease works, okay? So he leased them the vineyard and he collects from them There is uh, every bit of the Levitical law of tithing and giving in view inside of that reaping from those vineyard, uh, from those tenants. He sends his slaves, but what did they do to the slaves? They killed them, beat some of them, but they killed many of them, okay? So beat them and killed them. What does God do in his mercy next? He sent Jesus, didn't he? He sent his son. What did they do to him? Hold, Hold on a second. Say that again. Say say it louder. They they killed him. They killed him. Oh, that's pretty impressive. That would have been one step beyond what my mercy could do. You killed my prophets. Bomb them. That's my mercy. God sends his only son. But guess what? Even after they kill the Lord of glory, you know what he does? He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save those Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. What? Write them off already. Write them off. Just forget these people. You know why I say that? Because I'm altogether unlike my God. Because he has not fully transformed my heart to look exactly like his. This is what progressive sanctification is all about. I am becoming and learning what it means to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. To learn how to be merciful to people the way God is. God let these people kill his servants. Let them kill his son. And let them uh, reject him. And he still is holding out a hand of mercy to these people. It baffles me, church. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. How so, Paul? How do you magnify your ministry? Because I have God's view in mind. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen to save some of them. Why not all of them, Paul? Because they must believe. They must trust 
God. Verse 15, for if their rejection is reconciliation to the world, one of the greatest images in all of Scripture, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What will their what be? Acceptance. How do dead people accept Paul? They can. (laughs) Because we don't understand dead. For their rejection is reconciliation of the world, but their acceptance will be life from the dead. Verse 16. If if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, who is that church? Hardened Israel, hardened Jews, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in. Who is that church? Gentiles, you and I, among them and become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. What? Don't be arrogant towards the branches? But if you are arrogant, remember that. It is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. What does Paul have in view? Jeremiah 18. God has just built up a nation whom he chooses. And he says this, if they will trust me, it will go well with them. If they don't, I will rethink the good I have given to them. What did he just say to these Gentiles? Well, listen, he says, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. I thought it was judicial hardening. It, It is but you have to understand it in its meaning according to the scripture. Because of their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Well, he will not spare you either? Yes, walk by faith. Walk by faith. You are saved by grace through faith and you are kept by grace through faith. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God. Now there's a sermon title. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Nobody preaches about the severity of God. But look at what the severity of God leads to. To those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. These are Paul's words, not Nathan's. Verse 23, and they also... Underline this in your Bible. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in. Again, hardened Israel? People who were vessels made for wrath? Yeah, read it in context and you'll understand what the Apostle Paul is really meaning. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? What is, what is God's plan for Israel, for hardened Israel? To save them. What is, his, what is his desire for a lump of clay that has a defect in it? Reform. Guys, we are kept by the utter mercy of God. This is how I want you to walk away today. This is what I want you to walk away with today. You stand by faith on the work of none other than God himself. It's what it is. Should we become arrogant? Dave answered that question for me. Should we become arrogant? Of course not. Because God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
What should we do when it comes to the rest of the world? We should shout from the rooftops the infinite mercy of God. And while today is called today, we should call them to life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Guys, God's mercy endures forever. I'll pick back up on 11. I'm way out of time. I'll pick back up on 11 next week. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Start reading your Bible, not one verse at a time, not one chapter at a time. Start reading it one letter at a time. And then expand to a whole series of letters, the New Testament. And then expand to the whole series of letters, Genesis to Revelation. And when you do, and when you fight through the book of Numbers, when you do, you will come to the conclusion, God is a merciful, patient, enduring God who loves us immensely. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.